So I am not um, planning to give a singular halachic perspective um, for the Paskin. Um, despite that, I have to say that this is as scared as I've ever been for giving a shir. I would say a special version of the Tfilos Rabin Chunye Ben Hakana when you're dealing with uh, life and death issues and life and death issues which I don't have any um, personal competence um, in, uh, in dealing with. I think that issues have to be addressed, uh, but I'm aware of my own uh, limitations in terms of my knowledge of the real world on this. And so that has to be framed. And I don't have a final conclusion. I think a third issue that has to be addressed at the very start is that there's a possibility that halacha either in in practice or even in theory is not the right way to address this issue. Uh, I mean, by in theory is maybe we don't have halacha on uh, about war or about certain kinds of issues. And I mean, practically is that maybe even if we should have halacha about it, we don't have it yet. Uh, right, all, right, all those have to be addressed. And so part of the purpose of the shir is to see how useful halacha is as a model for uh, as a model for addressing these issues. Um, okay, I think um, there probably is, uh, um, yeah, there is, I think I do have the capacity to recognize raised hands. So if you have that capacity, that would be a great way. Um, putting putting uh, things in the chat is also a fine way to make comments. Uh, I will try to read the chat on occasion. Uh, if not, um, there. Dove, can I empower you to read the chat and tell me if I need to stop because it's a really good share? Dove Weinstein? It was a really good question. I'll trust you. <laughs> Gotta trust somebody. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, right. So that right, so that'll that'll be uh, so Dove can call attention to a question if um, if I'm if I haven't if I haven't noticed it, or you can raise your hand, or you can just put it in the chat and see how other people um, react. Um, okay, so with that, uh, I'm going to share my screen to um, to uh, to the source sheet. But um, you're welcome to just open your own screens to the source sheet and uh, and do it that way if you prefer. Because I'm not sure how long I'll stay in the screen in the screen sharing mode. Um, I'm going to start with a quote from an interview uh, with Ivan Lichtenstein. Uh, this was central to a um, debate, I guess, I had. This is Michael Broyd in uh, one of the early issues of the Edad Journal, um, which is a fundamental question about whether any sorts of religious rules can apply to law. And Roy Broyd in that version, um, there are many versions of Roy Broyd's article on war, and so I'm not going to ascribe any particular position to him. You can read the various iterations of his articles. Um, but in that article, he seemed to be arguing that there are no religious rules in war. And uh, really had nothing to say about war other than other than win. And I responded by with a lead quote from Lichtenstein's Akron of Racha, where he said, That's a typo in my phone. should be Sumam. Okay. Um, right, so it's most important that the person going out to war understand that. Um, he or she is not passing from a world possessed of one ladder, one hierarchy of values, to a world with a different hierarchy of values. Right, so that's the presumption I am working under, uh, that the world is not different. There isn't a space which is unethical. 
but that doesn't tell you how you derive the rules, right? You may derive the rules from one place to another. The hierarchy of values may be expressed differently. Um, let's say, for example, when we quote um, all sorts of Gemaras, which say that even in time of of war, peace is the supreme value. Okay, but you know, how do you express the supreme value? You might express it by trying to win the war really quickly. You might, um, right? There are all sorts of um, there are all sorts of ways in which a hierarchy of values can be expressed very differently in different circumstances. Um, so all I want to get out of the Rolfenstein quote is that somehow we have to feel a continuity between the world we live in uh, in peacetime and the world we live in in wartime. So where do we get those those values from? Um, so one key um, one key source which raises um, all the issues is in Bratius, where we have all the rules against um, against killing, and yet also you know, the rule that killing has to have a consequence, um, right? So we have here, um, right? So Right. So the the taking of the bloodshedding blood human blood is a crime which requires human response. We don't need now, but we will, in the course of the year, will address some aspects of the redundancy here, whether this is supposed to be taken halachically or not, and for whom. Right, so I'm working in a universe where the human being, a moral universe, where the human being is created with Selam Elokim, and the universe and the human being being created with Selam Elokim means taking human life is a crime, and that leaving human, leaving the taking of human life uh, unaddressed is also at least a wrong. Uh, we have to figure out a way to square that. Um, that's one element of the, uh, of the of the moral universe. Another, um, this, you know, the apologies to those of you who have heard me say this many, many times, I think that one of the, um, maybe the central ethical moment in uh, rabbinic Judaism is uh, Gemara in Sanhedrin, where, um, in several other places, where we ask why it is that certain sins, but not others, um, you're required to die before violating. Um, the three sins that Rabbi Yochanan consistently says uh, are in this category are Avodazarag, Yilayarayot, and Shvichut Damim. And the Gemara asks what the source is for um, Avodazarag. And the answer is, according to Beliezer, it's V'hafta Hashem Lekecha Becholo Vavcha O'Bechol Nashecha Becholo Meodecha. In that, that same Pasuk has a somewhat possibly different drasha by Rabbi Akiva, in Brachot, the Me'iri says that here we're really quoting this drasha of Akiva, Afilu Notel at Nafshecha. That's what Rashi quotes on Chumash, and so it's very famous. Not clear whether Rashi and Rebeliezer are saying uh, are saying different things, but um, oh, everyone agrees that the principle that you have to give up your life rather than commit Avodah is derived from a verse. And then the Gemara says, okay, what about Gilir Arayot and Shrichut Damim? So it derives it from uh, a, a brighta from Rebbe. Rebbe derives it from a verse in turn, which draws an analogy and says that the case of adulterous rape is parallel to the case of murder. And we're supposed to learn something the apparent, uh, in, apparently about the nature of adulterous rape from the comparison to murder. Uh, so the brighta is very confusing to read, um, but for our purposes, what matters is that the Gemara says, okay, so we, we end up deriving the 
the the rule that um, you can't that you have to give up your life rather than commit adultery from the rule that you have to give up your life rather than commit murder. Okay, and then the Gemara says, how do I know that you have to give up your life rather than commit bloodshedding or murder? And the Gemara answers, and I always you know, think this is really you know, maybe the most important line of rabbinic literature. The, the answer is that it's a svaro. Right? There's no verse whatsoever to teach you that you have to give up your life rather than commit somebody else. You just have to know that already. Um, and you have to know that before you come to Torah, because otherwise you can't understand why the Torah is comparing uh, murder and adultery. And the Gemara, the Gemara frames the Svara in a very Balabatish way. Right? There was a man who came before Rabbah and said to him, I was told by the Lord of my, of my, uh, of my realm, right, kill, kill, kill somebody else or I'll kill you. Am I allowed, implicit question, am I allowed to do it? And Rabbah tells, Rabba tells him, you're not allowed to do it. Uh, me, Yemar, or my chazit, depending which version of the Gemara you have, the who says your blood is redder than his. So somehow, right, so that's like the, that's the pre-Torah ethical moment, that uh, all human blood is equal, and so you can't take someone else's blood to save your own. Um, on the other hand, we have a Gemara in Bav Metzia, in which we pass on Rabbi Kiva, and Rabbi Kiva says, Your life comes first. So the power is that the Svara was said, knowing this drasha, because the Svara is, you know, as, as we have it framed, is later than the drasha of Rabbi Kiva, and yet somehow that has to be true. We have the law of Rodef, which seems like a, right, that you can kill somebody who is trying to kill somebody else, um, even though, right, and that seems like an implementation of the Pasuk Shofech Dama Adam in a sense. Um, right, we have, we, have all the, we have all the rules of de- uh, death penalty, and we move from the law of Rodef to the law of Baba Machteret, uh, Baba Machteret, which the Gemara seems to interpret it in Rava's version as allowing anticipatory self-defense, even when somebody is not currently trying to kill you, but there is a strong likelihood, a chazaka, however you want to frame it, that they will kill you, then you're allowed to kill them first. And even in some complicated versions, even if the reason they're going to kill you is because you're going to escalate by resisting their attempt at theft. So that also has to play in. And finally, we have, um, right, all these have been purely personal. We have, uh, I quoted from Yalka Shimoni, but there's an, it's in a variety of Midrashim, and about the law, the, the Midianite war, it's words, Midianim, Lama Kitsarim Heim Lachem, Okay, so there's, right, that's our moral background, um, right? If Lichtenstein says we have to be living in the same universe, so here's the moral universe. Human beings are created that makes killing a human being or shedding the blood of a human being an enormous crime, but also creates an obligation of, uh, of justice. Um, that, uh, in, in addition to there being an obligation of justice, there also is a circumstance uh, in which you are allowed to prefer your life, this Rabbi Akiva, um, where it seems you know, some version of where you're not actually killing the other person. Um, you right the the um, not only are you allowed to exact justice for past bloodshed, but you can even shed blood to prevent future bloodshed. You can even do that on a uh, to some extent on a statistical likelihood or or uh, or a statistical inevitability of the other person attacking. All that is personal. And one medrash that might move this from the personal to the communal level. Okay, that's the um, that's moral background. And so, you know, throughout throughout the discussion, we're gonna have to try to figure out how we um, how we um, right how we how we play all those things out. To what extent 
these are um, to an extent these these are um, these play out in the in the uh, in in the in the uh, in the law. Okay, so let's start with um, probably the most extreme statement about the legitimacy of civilian casualties in war. Uh, from my teacher, Rabbi J. David Bleich, a uh, famous article on nuclear war. Uh, this is in Contemporary Electric Problems, uh, volume 2, page 9. I assume it was originally published in tradition. He says the following. The Gemara Shavuos Daflamanei Mebeis declares that a sovereign power which slays one-sixth of the population of the universe, I assume this means the human population of the universe or the sentient population of the universe, uh, is, or, or the population of the sentient species of the universe, however you want to frame it, uh, is not culpable. It is to be inferred that the death of one-sixth of the inhabitants of the universe entails no culpability. But a slaying more than one-sixth of the population of the universe does engender culpability. Okay, right? So that sounds like, you know, you know I guess we could imagine a case in which the entire universe, uh, or five-sixths of the universe, was attacking you. And in some way we could frame it as self-defense, but it sounds uh, more like, in the context of, uh, of war, that we allow a lot of, of collateral damage. Uh, Tosfit says further, says Rabbi Bleich, that understanding the dictum is referring to the monarch of a Jewish state indicates the Gemara here imposes a constraint on Mohammed Rashut. Uh, right, you can't initiate a Mohammed Rashut if you anticipate that an inordinate number of people, you know, I guess we're about, I don't know, somewhere in the billions now, will perish as a result of, of, of hostilities. According to Tosfit's analysis, however, a similar restriction does not apply to wars which are mandated by scripture. Right, so Rabbi holds that in a there is a limit on the collateral damage that you can uh, cause, but in a mitzvah, there's no limit whatsoever. All right, his reference, he then uh, footnotes a Chatam uh, Sofer. Van Sofer says that not only is annihilation of one-sixth of the population of the universe forbidden, but also that war leading to genocide, defined as the extermination of one-sixth of a particular nation, is similarly prohibited. So this is much more Machmer. Um, right, only one sixth of a particular nation, and that's going to be useful as we um, go on in a particular way. Okay, um, so that's. I mean, again, you could try to claim that it's only that you know that he's talking about a case where the entire other side, uh, the entire population is combatant, but that's really, really hard to say. Uh, if we were to take this as a given, that would be a very hard. You know, that would be in many ways an exclusion of halacha uh, and and have and of Jewish ethics from the realm. Of um, of um, of Milchemet Rashut for sure, and certainly a Milchemet Mitzvah which has no restrictions. Okay, so the Chazunish uh, says something that sounds along the same lines. Says, mm-hmm. And Tosis there explains Milchemet Rashut, and the Chazunish wants to know why do we limit it to that? If they don't, if the right, if the other side is not keeping the Shavu Mitzvot. And they haven't done tshuva for that. Uh, why should you be punished if you kill more of them? Why can't you kill the whole world if it turns out that the whole world doesn't keep the Sheva Mitzvot? Okay, so a couple of problems show up here in the, um, in the Chazanish, uh, which are interesting. The first thing in the Chazanish is, is that the Chazanish um, conflates the private realm of criminal justice with the public realm of war. Right. Why can't you kill more people in war because that is punishing them for not keeping the Sheva Mitzvot? Uh, secondly, he raises for the first time a problem that will be devil us throughout the Shir, uh, which is, do we think that all the rules of war have to be reversible? 
Everybody that all the wars, all the rules for Jews conducting war with non-Jews, and leaving aside the question of civil war, uh, astonishingly, I have not yet seen a discussion of civil war uh, in of, of, of Jewish civil war in halacha, despite the uh, record of the Beit Rishon and met money you know, and of the internal dissensions in Beit Sheni. But no one seems to address that well enough. That comes up to some extent in discussions of Jews who are drafted into the Tsar's army and things like that. Uh, but those are all part of Jews participating in other wars, not civil wars. Okay, believing so the Chazanish here, when he frames it as the Sheva Mitzvot, I think a presumption here is that, you know, of course, that Jews can judge non-Jews for not keeping the Sheva Mitzvot, but non-Jews are not allowed to keep to judge Jews for um, for not keeping the Torah, because that, of course, requires Beitim. So one of the things that we have to think about is whether a, a you know a fundamental given of any any useful um, halachic ethic of war, um, and there are two ways. One is any useful in case we can articulate it without immediately removing ourselves in the eyes of the rest of the world from conversation, and B whether we think ourselves that it ever functions ethically. If there's ever a Right. If you ever say something, well, Jews can do this, but um, but in the if the situations are reversed, then Gentiles can't do the same thing to you. Um, all right. So some sort of raises, you know, I think raises both these issues. But nonetheless, he reads the um, he reads the Gemara like Rabbi Bleich, that uh, that in Melchamet Rishut, a Jewish king can kill uh, at least five six. Okay. Now, if you look at the Chassam Sofer, though, Chassam Sofer does not have the um, the problem. Of reversibility, because the Chassam Sofer actually frames this as about Jews. Um, right? The question is, uh, his question is, why is Nebuchadnezzar published, uh, punished, for um, right for destroying the Jews, if really Jews are less than one sixth of the world population? And Nebuchadnezzar is is framed in his right in his world. Right? We don't we have to deal with the, with the Historical accuracy. And Chavanesar is framed as somebody who conquers the entire globe. And so within his right, so even if you take the framing that a king is only allowed to kill one sixth of the population under their control. So Jews are less than one sixth. So in order to solve that, right, so that's where the Chassam Sofer comes up with the notion no, it's one sixth of any given national entity. And therefore Nebuchadnezzar was not allowed to kill more than one sixth of the Jews with a proviso that that's only true. If the Jews keep the Torah, right, or at least keep some notion, right, the Drasha uses right from Rashi is, "Im atem uvdalim in ha'amim atem sheli, v'imlav atem shel nevuchad netzer v'avadav, avachaverav." Right. So the so the um, so the Chassam Sofer really you know, is willing to deal with the consequences of reversibility, uh, and he puts in a new limit: one sixth of the population of a given uh, of a given nation, however one defines a nation. Which is also going to be a problem going forward. Okay, so that seems like you know that's our contribution to the conversation. Is uh, we have a prohibition against genocide, at least in Milchemet Rishut. Um, however, um, I think all this is just wrong, um, which is a scary thing to say. But um, the uh, Gemara, this is the Gemara in Shavuos, right? The Gemara in Shavuos is talking about the meaning of the term Shlomo in Shir HaShirin. Um, and it says, right, so it's, right, we have the Pasuk, Karmish Lilufanai, Elif Lecha Shlomo, so Shlomo gets a thousand, 
right, and 200 go to the people who are guarding the orchards. So the question is, is that 1,000 for God and 200, um, right, and 200 for the rabbis? That's right, that's if it's Kodesh? Or is it, or is it Chol, which means that, um, we'll have to figure out, we'll have to figure out how, what it means if it's Chol. It's in that context that the Gemara says, hang on a sec, but Shmuel said that a, that a Malchut diktala chad meshita be'alma, that kills more than one-sixth of the, right, of the Alma, Lomi Ansha isn't punished. Shinemar up to one six. Right? Shinemar Kamishul Fanai, Elif the Khashlomo, the Malchusa Durakia. So a thousand of the twelve hundred belong to God. Let's say that means that only God can kill them. Umasaim Latrimit Pirio, the Malchusa de Ara, but the the kingdom of this world gets to uh, gets to keep gets the two hundred and can decide what to do with them as they will. Okay, and that's that's the language of the uh, language of the Gemara. Now Rashi says on that. It's talking about with right the, the king can can kill one sixth, meaning the the king can take up to one sixth of the population for hard labor. Um, okay, Tosfid says no, it's the, it's and that's where the confusion comes in. Uh, but it's pretty clear to me that what Tosfid means, and I think all. Pretty much everybody until the, the um, Chazunish understood it this way, and I think if we look back, we'll see the Chsam Sofer understood it this way also. It's that the a king cannot start El Mulchemet Rishut in the right in the belief that more right if if the king is aware in advance that there's a likelihood that more than one sixth of the population will die. It has nothing to do with killing the other side. It has to do with what sort of casualties you can endure on uh, you can endure on your side. So I gave you can look at the Rimigash also, but my impression is that um, all Rishonim and all Achronim up to at least the late nineteenth century, as we'll see in a minute, uh, held clearly that that Gemara was talking about casualties on your own side, and had nothing to do with the amount of casualties you can cause on the other side. Uh, so I think we lose the um, the Samsofer's prohibition against genocide, uh, sadly. But we also um, don't have to deal with the presumption that we are okay with enormous collateral damage that doesn't raise uh, doesn't raise issues. Okay, that's um, that's part one. Uh, part two, however, is that uh, when people look for a claim that the uh, there simply are no rules in war. Um, so the way to say that is to say that, um, look, there's a prohibition against murder. War doesn't have a prohibition against murder. So war obviously is just a completely different zone. It's a space where all the values that are, um, that we, that play out in, within society don't play out when there is no society, uh, at all. And the usual source quoted for this is the Nitziv. Um, so I want to take us through a, series of Nitzivs and see if we think that's what he says. And the Nitziv is grounded uh, to some extent in the Gemara we just saw. So we also have to check whether the Nitziv provides a precedent for the reading that um, the Chassam Sofer and Rabbi Bleich took in which Shisa Me'alma refers to the other side and not to our own side. Tzamek um, Dover says, Miat Isha Chiv, right, that's back in our Pasuk in Breshis. When is a person punished? 
So a person is only published for bloodshedding in at a time when the other person is your brother. Right? There's no punishment for that at all because that's just how the universe was set up. Uh, he quotes our Gemara. Uh, and now he says, And we know this because even a Jewish king can engage in even though the king is considered to be, in a sense, killing a whole bunch of his own people. So he doesn't read the Gemara that way. Um, but he reads the Gemara as talking about the king killing his own people. Uh, on the other hand, he seems to think that if the king can go out to war, which, which involves deliberately putting the king's uh, own people at risk, then therefore those people can also kill other people. It's not clear how the logic, um, how the logic follows, but he's, right, that's clear again. And he, he sends you to Dvarim Chaf Chet, uh, and there he tells you that ordinarily it should be forbidden to, for, at least for, for a Jew, let's say, right, to participate in war because participating in a war would be a, is a version of suicide. And he says, no, just like the king is entitled to launch a Muhammad Rashut, so too you can volunteer. And he quotes the same Gemara. Um, in the Harchev Davar, on uh, Breshit Barakhtet Pasukeh, he says something which is much scarier in a sense. Uh, and this is where Natan comes to David. Natan Hanavi comes to David and says, um, you're not going to be punished for the death of um, Uriah because that's um, because the Pasuk which uses the phrase um, right, that you killed Uriah, Becherev Bnei Amon, the Gemara understands this as an analogy. So what's the comparison? So his answer is that he's here. Uriah was not actually, right? Uriah refuses to go home and sleep with Bathsheba. He is not actually rebelling against the king. Um, but, right, but, um, just, but just like David is not, um, but is not punished for what he does to Bnei Amon, so too he's not punished for uh, killing Uriah Uriah was not actually a Marid Bimolchut, um, but David judged him that way, and that's okay just like killing with Cherub Bnei Amon. And in Gemara and Kedushin, um, right, that's he's even clearer about that. Uh, he says, um, right, Vanira, um, Really, Uriah was not Mori B'Malchut, Chas V'Shalom. Tosfos have all sorts of stretches to make Uriah Mori B'Malchut, but really he wasn't. And, right, but since David tried to judge him as Mori B'Malchut, Lo Shalav. David wasn't punished with Rashut HaMelech, because the king has discretion that way. And Vua didn't Ikra Melchama, it's just like war. It's just like war. Okay, so, um, Let's uh, let's 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 sum it up to this point. The Nitziv says that um, a king has the right to send people out to war, and in the context of war, the king has the right to judge people as rebels and execute them, even if they have not committed a formal crime. And then, in one of those places, the Nitziv says. And by the same token, the people, or seems to say, one of the same token, the people who go out to war, 
um, don't have to worry about the lives of the others. Um, equally indiscriminately, because the king has the right to the, the king has the right to kill, to send you to kill whomever you want. Um, very very difficult to understand. Um, what I think is clear that um, you can't adapt an itziv as a basis for war without, at the very least, you know, giving the king absolute right to declare martial law. Um, that all, right, all this applies to a melchemet reshut, which is in the authority of the king, and may have nothing to do with melchemet mitzvah, and we should be aware that maybe melchemet mitzvah has stricter rules than melchemet reshut, we just we don't understand that. But I would say is, there is that one line in the nitziv, right? Kikach no sat haolam. Um, that war is not illegal. And he's bothered that in war, it seems that the, um, the king has the right to do things that should be prohibited. He extends that to the king uh, warping the justice system, that there are no rules about Marid B'malchut. I have my doubts whether any of us would be comfortable with his rule about Marid B'malchut, that you can deliberately arrange the execution of somebody who has done nothing wrong, because after all, it's wartime, and the king can kill whoever he wants. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the rules under which we generally function. And by the same token, when it, once we feel constrained to, to say that we're not willing to go as far as an insiv appears to go in the domestic uh, discretion of the king, so we'll have to impose the same limits on the um, on war the other ways. You know, if you want to believe that at least in wartime, um, the king has absolute um, power and there are no there are no ground there are no restrictions in terms of the king murdering, and then, we, then we're going to extend the king to the state. So the state can murder whoever it wants, not just send them out to war. Then in Echanami, you could, you could imagine that uh, Melchemet Rashut certainly has no ethical boundaries. Um, I don't think anyone really wants to go that way. So I imagine there must, that we would, in fact, impose constraints on the, uh, on the, um, the death of Uriah as well, in some way, and I uh, would have to impose that as well. But I can't deny that there is an Etsiv that says this, and that there is a, um, an approach. Um, Rav Shechter does it in a different way. We'll see Rav Shechter in a moment. Rav Shechter um, just builds the same argument, often in Siv and also often in Cheskinah, who says, look, there are three things. You're, right? It sounds like we have a value that says that, you know, that there are only three things that, that, um, that transcend human life. So why can we have a Melchamed Rishut? Um, or, right, so the, or why can we have a Melchamed for any other purpose? And the Cheskinah says it must be that 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 statement that you that only three things transcend life is only true in peacetime. Um, so Shechter makes the same kind of argument that uh, well, if, if it transcends our lives, then truly it transcends the other side's lives. Who says? Um, I'm not convinced, and we'll see at the end um, that in probably the most pro- problematic source we'll do, which is going to take up I think largely the the whole second half, Rashi Israeli, that he actually addresses this question. Uh, seriously, the challenge of Israeli is that he takes the moral questions more serious, seriously than anybody else. Um, but perhaps, and you know, not coincidentally, comes up with the answers in many ways that are most because they're more serious in a way they're more troubling. Okay, so right, so yeah, I'm starting from Rav Lichtenstein. I said that up front. I think that the attempt to you know to use the Gemara and Shavuos as a way out of it is not compelling at all because Gemara and Shavuos is not talking about the other side at all. There's a, a version of that argument which is based on the Nitziv, which is to say that we can derive from the fact that we can have casualties on our side, that we can have casualties on the other side. Um, but it seems to me intuitive that you can say that, okay, you know, that there's some degree 
of authority within a political system that doesn't apply across political systems and that the, there are all sorts of powers that a government has over its citizens that it doesn't have over non-citizens. Um, and so the argument, the argument to me doesn't follow at all. Uh, although I can't, you know, I can't deny that there is that one place where the Nisiv says, Kikach no olam. Um, but I, I, I'm hesitant, you know, for building universes out of silence. If the Nisiv had a book in which he talked about military ethics, and that's what he said, great. But he has a line in a different, you know, in one context. I don't, I don't build so much out of it. Um, and even along the way, he, he still reads the Gemara in, in Shavuos as being about the, our side and not the other side. Okay. So let's move now on. Uh, to a source that um, is quoted by Rosh Echter, uh, Rabbi Chaim Jachter uh, quotes it in Rosh Echter's, uh, Rosh Echter's name as well. Uh, and I want to read the source first, and then we'll see how it's how it's used. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Let's let's share screen again. Um, uh, okay. Okay, so here's so let's let's take a look at the at the mar, at the maral. Uh, we're still in, in order of the pages. We're on page six now. So this is maral's parish on Rashi, and we're in the realm of um, right. We're in the realm of the story of Dina. Uh, so maral starts with you know, with the question that you you know from a moralist perspective you want to ask. Achkasha, im right im Right, what justifies Shimon and Levi in massacring the city? Um, the Shechem sin, but what sin did the other people of the city commit? Uh, so he quotes the Rambam, uh, right? So the Rambam turns this into a private, um, a private rule of uh, of judgment that the people of the city failed to bring Shechem to justice. This is a violation of the the non the Gentile uh, the Noachite commandment of Dinim, and Yerchayiv Mita for all of them, and therefore. Um, and therefore, that's what justifies Shimon and Levi. Um, yeah, I just point out that we, that we have one other famous case where the brothers sit as a Beitin and condemn someone to death. That is uh, when they condemn Yosef to death. Uh, we don't think so positively of the brothers' uh, capacity to engage in dispassionate judgment in that context. Uh, every time you know somebody tries to justify Shimon and Levi, you have the question: Okay, but in Chumash, who do you think gets? Who do you think is right, Shimon and Levi, or do you think Yaakov, who says um, right that? Um, right, you've done something terrible and curses them uh, afterward. Be that as it may, that's the Rambam's answer. And famously, the Ramban responds. The Maral quotes him. I, I skipped this. That uh, that dinun is a mitzvah ase, and the chi of misa is only for mitzvah uh, for mitzvah lotase, not mitzvah ase. Um, but the Maral now asks a different question. He says, "V'emes dvartei mahem eluadvarim." But all this is astounding. Ki echif sharlehem ladunet ben nesiharitz. How plausible is it to expect the rest of the city to bring their prince to justice? Very likely, the people of Shechem were afraid of Shechem and his father Chamor. And the whole mitzvah of Dinim, that only applies when you have the capacity to judge. Right? But if you can't do it, you can't do it. Right? So this is going to become a big issue that we will discuss uh, again, when we get to Rabbi Israeli, um, but to what degree do we hold people collectively responsible for a collective failure when individually they could not have solved the problem? Right? That's true. You could say the whole society failed to bring Shem to justice, so let's wipe out the whole society. Or you could say no individual could have brought Shem to justice, and 
We don't reasonably expect people, we don't punish people for their failure to ignite revolutions when it's very unlikely that had they attempted to act on their own, they would have succeeded. Um, so the morale takes the position, which is um, going to be valuable for other purposes later, that no, you cannot judge people for a collective failure when individually it would have been um, it would have been a risk, at least um, probably to life and possibly to something else, for them to uh, for them to perform this mitzvah. And this is bracketing the question for now of what ha- right of are there things for which you need to be moser nefesh or helvel yavor? Uh, but here we're not dealing with prevention; we're dealing with judgment after the fact, um, right? So so far as I know, nobody believes that it's helvel yavor to allow a murderer to <coughs> to escape judgment. Okay, so right, so right, so the morale says, "How could we possibly? What is the Ramam talking about? How could we possibly hold the whole? Si- um, right, how could how could we possibly how could we possibly hold um, hold Shem hold Shem liable uh, the city of Shem liable for the actions of <clears throat> their political leader when it's plausible to assume that their political leader had the power of the gendarmerie or at least that the <clears throat> that the regular citizens had no way of knowing that they wouldn't be shot by the right by the authorities um, if they uh, if they protested. So the moral answers. <clears throat> but it seems to me this is not difficult at all. Because uh, right, the situation, you're, the the thing you're talking about, right, the situation we're talking about about private punishment <coughs> of people for violating Shavu Mitzvahs is not similar to a case where you have two umot, can go b'nei Yisrael u'kna'anim, sorry, like the Jews and whoever, whatever the word Canaanite means here, shehem shnei umot, who are two different nations, how do we know that? K'nechsiv v'ayinu l'am echad, right? So, right, because, um, right, Shechem and Chemor say we're going to be, we're going to become one nation. So obviously, if you're going to become one nation, you originally were two nations. So the Shimon and Levi are committing a national crime against another nation. And therefore, Shimon and Levi were entitled to fight against the city of Shechem, like any nation going to fight against any other nation which the Torah permits. And even though you'll tell me the Torah says, um, right, that we have to call Shalom out, right, this was, they, they engaged in a surprise sneak attack, but the Torah says that um, when you go to a city to attack it, you have to call out peace first. That's only when there has been no prior wrong. Even the only one of them did it. Since they're part of the nation. Because that nation is the one that did the first wrong. Many people were not engaged in this, in Midian as well. Okay, so this is really quite scary. Uh, Morel says that... Um, War is fought between nations, and therefore, if one other, if one member of another nation does something wrong to you, 
So if they were a pri- right, if a, if two private citizens do wrongs to each other, so then obviously you can't go do wrong. You can't expand the circle of um, of violence and wrongdoing. But if you have a wrong done by a citizen of another nation to your nation, then you can go kill the entire other nation. Um, right? That's what it's. Right? That's what the simple meaning of this is. I would note that the simple meaning of this is again reversible. Um, right? It's you know that it seems to me that if one Jew does something wrong to some of another nation, well, boom, we have just it won't be anti-Semitic to go try and commit genocide against the Jews because it's not that it's just the nature of war. Um, um, okay, right. So that's um, right. So that's uh, right. That that is. Um, a scary thing, right? That saw Miriam's question in the chat, right? So that's like, really, like how far? Do, how far do we go, right? Do we say uh, a? On the one hand, right? Do we say we, that you know that we start off by saying we don't hold, we never hold pe- uh, people responsible for the actions of their collective unless they could individually va- vary them, uh, right? That seems like an extreme removal of responsibility. And now we'll say, but it doesn't matter whether we hold them responsible or not, because even if it wasn't their political leadership, it was just somebody in the other nation who did it wrong to us. Now we can go take revenge. Um, I also point out that what, like, what's his definition of Ummah? It's a little bit odd because he says Kananim, but obviously Shechem is not the entirety of the Canaanite nation. Are we gonna, right, what happens if, you know, if the person who had done it was, I don't know, I, I don't want to credit people, was, you know, was Atlantean. We can now go wipe out all of Atlantis, even though the person did it you know, as, while visiting in Shechem? Um, I have grave difficulty taking this maral as any kind of source, both because I, I don't believe I would that I or anyone else would accept the reversibility the, the reversible version applying to Jews. I don't see any way in which you can limit this to just the city of Shechem, and um, and just overall like how could it just be like that? Like one you know all interpersonal wrongs, uh, as long as they cross national boundaries, you know create a legitimacy of genocide. Um, just uh, right, find it find it utterly utterly impossible to believe, and part of this, <coughs> I think, is just I have difficulty dealing with Maral, who believes in the realities of metaphysics in ways that I have trouble uh, trouble handling. Uh, is certainly going to be the case that to deal with war as a phenomenon, to some extent, we're going to have to treat abstractions, um, political groups, as if they are some you know as if they are the actors as opposed to individuals in the case, but to do it as absolutely as Maral does here as a basis for halacha seems to me impossible. Um, Rabbi Jachter's article uh, quotes Rabbi Blauer, Rabbi Arya Gutel, who tried to argue, well, look, you know, this Maral is just a parish on Rashi on Chumash, and that's not a basis for halacha, and I think that's a good argument. Um, also, I point out, like, whenever Whenever somebody justifies Shimon and Levi, so you don't know whether that means they think Shimon and Levi are right or they're just giving you the best svara for Shimon and Levi, but Yaakov really wins. Except for the Ramam, who's Paskini, but the Maral is a parish on Rashi and Chumash. Uh, so those are all good formal arguments for saying that I'm not, you know, that I wouldn't want to be Samech on the, on, on the Maral. But fundamentally, I have to say, like, I, you know, I wouldn't anyway. It's just like, it's, you know, I, I can't imagine anyone can bear those consequences. And here I'm going to make an argument, which you'll see. If you um, let's see if you buy or not, which is that um, <clears throat> when I first read Rabbi Shachter's article um, many years ago, I think uh, 
I wrote a fairly intemperate response to him privately. Because just the morologist, like, do you really think this? Do you really think that we are, that a wrong committed by one Jew against another nation creates the right of a war of revenge against the entire Jewish people? Do you right? Do you think? Oh no, that's only if somebody does something to the Jews, but not vice versa. Like, how do you how do you even get there? Uh, so when this was um, put out again recently, um, so uh, Rabbi Alex Ozer, who I think is still here, uh, point, correctly pointed out that I had reacted too much to the Maharal and not enough to the people quoting. So I want to take a look at the version of Rav Herschel Schechter's article on war, which builds off the Maharal, and here's what he says. Um, Right? So the state of Israel is in a state of war, and we'll have to talk about what that means later. Okay, so this is Rosh Hashanah's position, which we will take up again later, perhaps, uh, which is that um, terrorist attacks, to some extent, can be seen as a continuation of the state of war beginning in the War of Independence. Right? You know, there's never been a peace treaty outside of Egypt, so we can talk about that. Shareha Arabim, now he uses the word Arabs, which I think is one of the problems here, that the, you know, the Arabs is not a halachic category. Tuanim beferish pemale, so now, right, first narrowing. Therefore, the army has to be, right, the IDF has to behave with all those who participate in those attacks <coughs> in the same way that they would react, that they would act in, in a state of actual war. Okay, we don't view them as aside criminal actions. If there's a need for it, that they should shoot to kill. And if there is a need for this, and if it's absolutely necessary, because sometimes it's impossible <coughs> to right to clarify who are the ter- right who are the terrorists uh, who are or- and who are the people organizing the attacks and the terrorist actions. According to what is needed to win, even others of the same nation who are innocent of wrong. Right, so what Rabbi Ozer pointed out to me correctly, right, is here it says, and here it says, and here it says, that Rav Shechter is very clear that the only justification for ever um, justification for shooting uh, to kill is if it is necessary to win the war. It isn't right, um, and then he says, even things like even shooting the terrorists is only necessary. Is only is only legitimate to shoot to kill, and shooting shooting innocents is only ne- is only right is only um, acceptable if it's necessary to win the war. And then he quotes the Maral. So um, what I said is I I don't see any way to get that out of the Maral. So I think it must represent 
which I don't object to at all, a prior moral commitment that, you know, that if the morale were, were taken literally, he could, right, then I wouldn't take it because that doesn't make any sense. The only way to use the morale is um, by putting in limitations that don't appear in the morale uh, uh, and which are hard to square with uh, the action, right, if, you know, if you want to ground it in the, in the issue in Shrem, um, very hard to square it with the uh, with the outcome of the with the outcome of the of the story in Shem. Um, so I so I took this as a, an instinctive moral limitation on a source, um, but the truth is that I think it sort of starts on the assumption that we need to find a heter for killing non-combatants in war. We don't want to find a heter that lets you that lets you kill indiscriminately in war. Well, we found a heter that allows us to kill non-combatants. So let's say it only applies discriminately. Uh, I'm comfortable, more comfortable, saying that it's in the nature of war that there are going to be civilian casualties, and what we should be looking for is the the restraints. I'm less interested in the source. The source and quoting sources that have no restraints is dangerous. Um, so I wouldn't do it this way. Um, but I think I'm okay pointing out that that's what um, Rav Shechter did. Um, now, I think that if you look at the English versions, um, which I think are not by Rav Shechter himself, they're usually, they're usually translations, uh, so it's still there, uh, but there's something that snuck in to the, um, that snuck into English translation, which is not in the Hebrew, which is, as regards those who attacked the Jews, as Amalek did, even if only one of their members were responsible for this act. So I have no idea where the Amalek, how Amalek got into the English translation of a text that has no Amalek in the Hebrew. Um, and that obviously is really dangerous. Um, because you know, there are certainly no ethical restrictions on, on Amalek. Uh, right? the, the, the text above the line says, uh, even when, right, kill when necessary in times of war, uh, right? and that I can, right? and that I think is exactly what, uh, exactly what we said. But um, but the introduction of Amalek is uh, right is simply right, is simply is simply dangerous. Uh, but it could be that um, I originally saw the English and not the Hebrew, and that's um, what set me off. But I'm going to set this up. You know, that's my that's my thesis. That it, I don't see how anybody who just reads the Maral can say, oh, and obviously it has all these limitations of extreme necessity. Uh, and then we have to figure out what that necessity means, right? If you have right? That's an, that's a a really, you know, that's a standard that is um, very much like the notion of proportionality, because it means you, right, it's not about the battle; it's about the war. Uh, now, the question, which I think Adina asks in the chat, which is the, the right question, which we're going to have to address in the context of the whole shear, is one of the um, one of the ways in which halacha is certainly weak about this, or you know, it means it hasn't done its job. The job would have to do if you think halacha should do it is that halacha is almost, there's a little bit of halacha about the king, and then there's a lot about what individual soldiers can do. We haven't talked about, like, you know, but particularly if I'm right, that the Gemara Shavuos only talks about what the king, the casualties the king can plan on um, amongst his own uh, army and not talk about the other side. So, we, like, what sorts of inevitable casualties are you allowed to plan for? In, right when you're setting up, right when you're setting up military action, so the soldier in the middle of the action might say, "Well, look, I have to shoot this person, or else I'll get killed." Right, right. But the you know, but if a planner has two plans of action, how do they choose among them um, in terms of the 
all right, in terms of civilian casualties, and that would be a fairly rigorous standard to say that you can't you can't have civilian casualties at all unless this activity is necessary for the war. That's very much like the um, proportional proportional to military value that is the standard of proportionality uh, currently assumed in international law. Um, so if that was really said, right, if that's really the key line, it's kifia dorish milchama, I would be okay with this. Uh, I just don't know that, you know, I think that this is being imported. And because it's not really naturally emerging from the Makarot, I think it's vulnerable to this kind of um, insertion, right, as Amalek did, uh, which honestly I don't know that Roshachter would ever have seen. Um, because I don't know that I don't know that he ever um, I don't know that he takes responsibility for the English versions of his articles, and there there have been multiple of them also. So I don't know. Okay, that is uh, that is the um, the end of my discussion of the uh, of the Maharal. So we have one other source to do, and then we'll uh, and then we'll um, we'll break. But I thought I would stop. For a moment, if there was a question that somebody felt, or a reaction that somebody felt was really important to um, to to uh, to say at this point. Okay. Oh, yes, Adina. I mean, in regards to the Maharal and how you're saying that there's reciprocity, um, I mean, uh, if you look at Bamban's comment. Um, about when when Sarah uh, is uh, Hagar and causes children Hagar to, to run away, he seems to, to say that yes, this makes sense that uh, we are oppressed by the descendants of Hagar because Sarah oppressed her and Abraham let it happen. Yeah, I think that's another good example. You know, that would be a good a good uh, basis for arguing that we should assume that kind of reversibility, uh, right? That, you know, the Ramban is um, perfectly happy to say that we get punished for what we do wrong to them as much as they get punished for what we do wrong, for what they do wrong to us. Absolutely. Right. I mean, it's also that it's, it's an individual before there even was a Jewish people. Yeah, and yet it becomes national. With you both ways, thank you. With you both ways. Um, okay. So let's do one more before we break. Um, and then we'll get to, you know, this, in a sense, this is the easy stuff because the really hard thing will be to try and deal with, um, with Rabbi Israeli. And I don't know how far, I hope we'll get far. Okay, so the, in Divra Yamim, um, right, um, God comes to David and says, David described, Vahi Alayid Var Hashem, right, the word of God came upon me and it said, Dam Larov Shafachta, Rumilchamok Dolota Sita, Lotivna Bayat Lishmi, Right, so something about David's past makes him ineligible to build the Beit Hamikdash. Uh, on this, the Radak says as follows: So first, fast anything. Radak says, "Well, look, we look and say for Malachim, and we never find that God ever said this to David." David bilibo. So this is David's um, conscience speaking. So that's just a fascinating claim. As David had pangs of conscience. Um, right? David said in his heart, What it means is that God, that's why God is not letting him build a baby gosh. And then much less interestingly, Or Natan Navi 
and you know, if I were building a universe, I would, you know, I would say the Tananavi. Oh, it's the same, the same as Batsheva, right? So we're having, you know, so it, it and Uriachiti, it, it all plays out together. But it's much cooler, I think, that Radak says that it's um, pangs of conscience, right? And even though he says, right, even though this is not written in Sefer Shmuel, right? Not Malachim, sorry, it's not written in Sefer Shmuel. Uh, we have other places where there are nevuah, where, where there are nevuot that um, that happen, right? Like Moshe Rabbeinu and the Maraglim, I think, right? That um, that where there, there's dialogue that happens in Chumash, in what you know that this or, or in Tanakh that's left out of one telling of a story and appears in the other telling of a story. Fine. Right, so God's saying to him, right, that there is you shed innocent blood, just for example, Uriah, which is in front of me, right? Arts of the So the right no of your that Shaul and Doeg Melachadom the Doeg Adomi a kill, that's David's responsibility. Okay, um, so so far Uri is not a chiddush that it's in, is innocent and Dov is responsible. No vira kohanim is not a chiddush that is innocent, but holding David responsible, maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe you know he should have known that Shul was going to come after them. We go further. Gam bidmei hagoyim asher shafach otam shelo hayu b'nei milchamto efshar shayu b'hem anashim tovim v'chasidim. Among the people, uh, whose, among the non-Jews, the Gentiles whose blood he shed, uh, there were among those who were not b'nei milchamto, and maybe among those who were not b'nei milchamto, there were people who were good and pious. Nonetheless, he was not punished for them. Because his intent was to wipe out the, uh, right, to wipe, to uh, right to what to wipe out the wicked so that they, they not attack Israel, uh, right? Then we have a line that is talking about David's um, sojourn when he's hiding out from Shaul uh, with the plishtim and he kills people. And I'm going to skip this line for now because Rav Asher Weiss doesn't quote it, and there's a whole machlokus which we have interpreted. I'm going to tell you it's a problematic line, but it's problematic on its own right. It ha- doesn't play a role in the conversation about war. I felt um, I felt unfair leaving it out because it could have been a very interesting uh, and challenging source for uh, or sort of unlimited killing in war, but no one quotes it, so I'm just leaving it there for you to see. Um, but because David, it happened to him that he, did, he shed lots of blood, right? so he was prevented from building the, the temple. So David's rentability of Edomikdash, just like you can't use metal to, you can't use iron to cut the stones of the altar, right? Why? Because the metal is used to make killing things, so you can't make out of it something which is intended to be for peace. So David somehow became a killing tool. Okay, but at the same time, we have this line, right, that David killed people, Shelo Milchamto. And maybe the Anashim Tovim Chasidim among them, that is that a precedent for um, for for civilian casualties? So here's what Rav Asher Weiss says about it. I have one caveat. Uh, this is in Minchas Asher Devarim Simin Lamed Bet. It's also still on the website of uh, of Rav Asher Weiss. However, I am told uh, by Dov Weinstein that um, that uh, it is not in the reprinting of the Minchas Asher on Devarim. Uh, and I have sent uh, sent a message through um, 
Uh, I, said, I, well, I asked Ellie Fisher, who uh, sometimes speaks with Ravasha, who said he'd try to find out for me, but I have not yet found out why it is that this siman does not appear in the new printing of Minchad Dasher Dvarit. Um, here's what he says. So after he quotes the, uh, the Radak, we've learned from him, uh, So he takes it as a private matter, um, right? If the only way the only way to get rid of murderers is that there right, there are innocents among them, so meikar adin you're allowed to you're allowed to kill the innocent to get the murderers. Under what circumstance? You right, not as a judicial thing. So presumably it's to prevent the murderers from murdering again. Um, maybe that that line is a little bit. And what exactly meikar adin here is not clear to me. Right. Therefore, David is not punished because he David did something. Justifiable. But nonetheless, God prevented him from building the Beit HaMikdash. We discover here that there is some kind of flaw, real flaw, of bloodshedding in what David did. So Weiss puts in the same kind of qualification, or even a string, right, that you certainly have to make the effort to prevent the killing of those who have not sinned in your attempt to kill the murderers, but when it's, um, but when it's impossible so then they are also swept up along with those whom it is a mitzvah to kill. So now we have moved it to those whom it is a mitzvah to kill. So he's not talking about, it doesn't sound like our voice is talking about Muhammad Rashut in some sense. That's problematic in its own right as to what sorts of wars of David are we talking about. Uh, since almost everybody understands that we're talking here about David's wars of Rashus. Um, and, you know, but he, and he, it seems to me that he takes a... Um, it takes a much more serious um, read of the, right? It's not just that David became a tool, and there are you're right, commentaries who say that it's, like the, the Ramah seems to think it's just that it either reflects something about David's character or it caused a change of his character. Um, Roger Weiss seems to think that there's something wrong he did here. Um, and we have to see, right? Therefore, he should have tried to stop, he should have tried to stop it. But if it's impossible, right? Then there is a right. Okay, so I think that's the same kind of phenomenon that he's taking a source that doesn't have these restrictions and he's imposing those restrictions, um, which I'm okay with because I would also like to impose those restrictions. Uh, I think what they're telling you is that these sources are not seeking to give you halakha lamasa uh, instructions. They're just trying to solve a problem in a text. And the way to solve a problem in a text is, okay, in wartime, there, right, there are things you can do that you can't do in the rest of wartime. Yes, if we just read the story simply, that would lead us to think that you can do anything in wartime, but they're not willing to say that. So it must be that, right, that somehow we'll have to do, give a more detailed account of the war, in which we'll figure out how their actions meet this standard. Um, and in the case of David Melech, maybe they didn't quite meet the standard. Like the simplest way out of it is to say that David Melech killed people in a way that God can't take judicial cognizance of, but he can take moral cognizance of, because David wasn't careful enough. Um, so I, I, I had, 
have these two sources which I'm going to quote with uh, with the caution and Doverty. Thought I shouldn't quote the second one, but I'm going to do it anyway, and uh, we'll see. Right, we'll see it. We'll see how it how it plays out. Um, Ravad Yosef has a famous, gorgeous truva about uh, Kohanim who are soldiers. Um, right, who fought in the war against the armies of Egypt, um, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria in the Jewish fight, and they killed people among the soldiers of the enemy. Are they prevented from duchening in order to, um, in order, right, in order to, um, in, right, because they killed? The Ravadi's response is, Chas v'shalom. In order to get this chas v'shalom, he quotes the Radak. And he says, look, the Radak says that David is prevented from building the Beit HaMikdash only because of the possibility that he killed people Right. So, obviously, says Ravadia, uh, right, there, there was no, David would not have been prevented from building the Beit HaMikdash if he had only killed soldiers. Or at least if he only killed soldiers who were named Milchamtim. And there, right, so Ravadia says, right, so, right, Mashmashal Etzam Himilchamat Lohayuro Oilamon O. So David Melech could have built the Beit Hamikdash if he had not had this right. If had, there was not this flaw that he killed the people who did not need killing, uh, right? And and I think Ravadia draws a proper analogy between uh, Birkat Kohanim and and the Beit Hamikdash because Birkat Kohanim via same right? It's right. It's a question whether a clean milchama can become a clean shalom. So the question that one you know has to ask about this, but what would Ravadia say? Of somebody who um, killed civilians in the course of a uh, right in the course of military action, right? What are the standards for that? So on the next page, I give you right that um, Rav Yisroel Zilberstein in Chashukei Chemed has a, right has an article about somebody who says that they have nightmares because they are afraid they might have shot somebody shot a terrorist after they had raised their hands. Um. And Rav Zilberstein's response is, well, I think that it's really hard to make that kind of distinction in wartime, but when the time comes to build the Beit HaMikdash, probably you shouldn't. Uh, now, I argue over entire Rav Zilberstein, Chashuk is not Halacha Lama Sipsak. And you know, people take it that way, and I can't help it, but in his introduction, he tells you he's just trying to show you ways in which you can apply Gemara's to cases. And I just find too many of the responses so beyond the pale of what I would consider to be normative psaac that I'm just not that I, I think it has to be treated as a pedagogic effort. Uh, and he doesn't say anything about Birka Cohen in here. And I think that if Ravadi were asked that question, Ravadi would say, you know, you're really right. If you shot somebody unnecessarily, then you couldn't do him. But there's this fake sveka here. Maybe the person didn't raise their hand, didn't raise their hands. Maybe if they raised their hands, they were faking. And so Ravadi, I think, in the end, right, if you had a soldier who served in good faith, um, I think Ravadi would, would, would find ways to let that person do it if it came up. Um, nonetheless, Rev Zilberstein does, you know, draw the implication, I think, which is that there is, right, that there is a, you know, a potentially serious consequence when you kill somebody in war who doesn't need killing. Uh, and I pointed out in the, in a written version of the, right, when I, when I, 
So when I wrote when I wrote this up, I pointed out that it's also not clear to me that Rav Weiss is correctly reading the um, the meaning of the Radak, even aside from the question of whether he whether he's correct about putting all these restrictions in, because Radak is talking about Osam Shlohayu b'nei Milchamto, and that's and Rajafter explicitly translates that as non-combatants. Um, but the Radak uses that phrase elsewhere. What it means is people who are not part of the war. Um, and meaning if you kill the allies of the people whom you're at war with. Um, right? It doesn't, it's not actually talking about, it's not talking about civilians who are members of the same nation as the warriors. It's talking about, right, it's not about people in war from the, right, from the, um, from the other nation, and we're dealing with this circumstances like um, Hector and Achilles in the right in the Iliad, right? When Achilles tells Hector to please, right? Like Hector, uh, Hector tells Achilles to please leave because I don't want to kill you, right? When you had a war that when there was when it was still possible in the context of war to tell somebody, well, look, I have no quarrel with you. Um, so if that's right, then Radak doesn't actually tell us one tell us anything one way or the other about civilians. Um, right, and right, and that's also as we'll see. Rishol Israeli again uh, gets correct that the story that people quote about uh, when Shaul comes to fight the Amalekim, and he tells the he tells the um, the Kani to to leave them. He's not telling the the women and children of the Kanim to leave. He's telling the soldiers of the Kanim who are fighting with Amalek, "This is not your quarrel. So please leave." And that's very common in uh, in all, all sorts of ancient wars. That you make an appeal to the allies, right? You tell the allies of the other side, "We have no quarrel with you. Why do you need to die here? Why, right? Can't can't you leave?" Um, so there are all sorts of ways in which Radak, I think, is not a necessarily a good uh, a good precedent. Um, what I get of here really is that Rav Asher Weiss, in order to make it a precedent, um, right, feels compelled again to put it in the line, right, Ach Shar, um, and that he takes the, the he takes the uh, the failure, the being prevented from building the Mikdash is a real moral flaw. And I think that I have shown that Ravadia does the same and that that's picked up uh, by Rav Zilberstein. Even though neither Rav Weiss nor, um, nor Rav Zilberstein quote Ravadia, I think that's probably where they're both coming from. Um, that the, uh, Ravadia's reading of it that, um, that really it's not just that because you did this, it's that because you did something wrong by doing this. Okay, I think that's a good point to break. Uh, we come back. We'll do the 